Let's read the passage together. This is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for, time, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, there, this was a letter uh, that was written to Paul from the Corinthians, as we can see in verse 1. And the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, is probably, I, I would say it is the most exhaustive chapter on marriage issues. So the chapter will include things like uh, intimacy in marriage. It will deal with singleness or celibacy. It will deal with widows. It will deal with abandonment and divorce. So if you're not married yet, or you've been married, or you've been widowed, or divorced, or whatever the case may be, this is going to speak to every situation. Eventually, we're going to get to probably every situation we can imagine in 1 Corinthians 7. But the first part, the first five verses, the focus this morning, is intimacy within marriage. And Paul is going to answer some questions about marriage. I would imagine that you probably have questions about marriage. I would imagine that those of you who have been, even been married for decades still have questions about marriage. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Some questions are going to continue, right? They're just, they're just differences between men and women and so forth. We at uh, Living Truth, when we get a couple that comes to us and they want to get married, we require premarital counseling. And we do five one-hour sessions with a couple that's about to be married. But I will tell you that five one-hour sessions, a total of five hours of premarital counseling, cannot possibly prepare you for what's to come. And it's because a lot of us, when we were growing up, maybe we didn't see a good example. Maybe marriage wasn't talked about a lot in the house. Maybe you come from a broken, divorced background. Uh, in fact, I will tell you, as we broach this subject, even as I look out at you, the statistics say that one in three women have been sexually abused, sadly, and about one in six men have been sexually abused. So we bring our brokenness into the bedroom, literally. We can carry our baggage there. Those who study marriage and study the expectations going into marriage have commented that sometimes our expectations are so high as this person's going to solve all of our emptiness and all of, they're going to be our knight in shining armor, well, we can be very disappointed the day after the wedding. In fact, the first year of marriage can be the hardest year because it's in that first year that you're making all of these adjustments and you're trying to learn the other person. And just FYI, you got their best while you were dating. <laughs> now you're going to see them in the morning with drool, you know, encrusted in their mouth and all that stuff. And that's why some of the ancients said that marriage is actually the school of discipleship because it's there that you're going to live in close proximity, tight quarters, day in and day out through the good times and the bad times, the tough days and the pleasant days. So marriage can help to comfort us through life, 
but it also can challenge us in very unique ways. And all of us probably could say that no matter how many books you've read on marriage or you know, how long you've been married or how much premarital counseling you had, it's just simply not enough. We need the Word of God and we need the power of God. And so this is what we're going to deal with today, questions about marriage. Namely, we're going to talk about sexual intimacy within marriage. Now, I want to tell you that before we get into the verses that it's important that we don't isolate this section of Scripture. This section of Scripture needs to be governed by other things in 1 Corinthians, for example. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, Let everything you do be done in love. And so if love is driving your spiritual life, then you won't do things out of selfishness. You won't do things, you know, just, just to uh, get what you want out of marriage. In fact, the Bible says love is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, love is kind. It goes on to say love is not self-seeking. And for a lot of marriages in Corinth, and I would imagine in Corona today, the devil had gotten a foothold into people's marriages because we bring a lot of the worldly baggage into our marriages and into the bedroom. The culture today is saturated with sex, but not as God intended it. It's saturated with adultery and premarital sex. In fact, I think I read a stat that about 18 million uh, People or couples are now living together, unmarried, and get this, the majority of them are over 50 years old. And so people, you know, commentators of the time, movie stars, can give us a very negative view of marriage. In fact, sometimes you can be at work or in a social setting, and the conversation can quickly degrade into making fun of marriage and making fun of your spouse, and men making fun of women, and women making fun of men. And people basically just kind of waving the white flag about their marriage. That is not what God intended for your marriage to be. Marriage is from God. Before there was ever a formal church, before there was ever government, there was a family. And God pronounced through Moses for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now that one flesh statement in Hebrew specifically speaks of the intimacy within the marriage relationship. It does also speak of spiritual oneness and friendship oneness. But in Genesis 2.24, it speaks of intimacy within marriage, that literally the two become one flesh. Now, Paul had a very high view of marriage. He would call it what scholars call it archetypal. What does that mean? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, this is a great mystery, marriage, but I speak of Christ and the church. So your marriage is a message your marriage is a message to a watching world, to your children, grandchildren, friends, about the gospel. Your marriage is supposed to be the gospel on display. And the only way that your marriage can be that is if it's Christ living through you and the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Because let's face it, we are naturally selfish. We can easily gravitate to our own desires. We can want to get what we want to get out of marriage and you know, that's where a lot of divorces happen. That's not the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is that we love each other, that we're patient with each other. Because we bring so much baggage to the marriage, 
because we can bring so much hurt and pain into the bedroom, it is going to call for patience and kindness and understanding. And even renewal and growth in some of these areas where we need it. So I want to encourage you that even though some of the subject matter is a little tough, it's something we need to hear. Here's where we are in the Bible. Paul's going to comment about our intimacy in marriage. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Notice that the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul and they had questions about marriage. Just like maybe you would call a call-in Bible answer program and maybe you have questions about the Bible and about marriage. And some of this language is a little bit difficult. You need to understand the setting and the context of what scholars say about it. And what we do know plainly from verse 1 is that Paul is responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written him about their questions. They had a whole host of questions as it relates to marriage. And notice the next phrase. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. If you have an ESV, it says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations, relations with a woman. And if you have an NIV, I think it says it's good not to marry. Now, what is going on here? What is Paul saying in verse 1? This could be a little bit confusing, and uh, there are two major views. On verse 1, some believe that Paul begins by asserting his own beliefs about what should be the ideal in the Christian life. It is better not to touch a woman, or better not to marry, or better not to have sexual relationship with a woman. That is not Paul's view, but let me qualify. Paul would affirm what the Bible says, that you are to find your fulfillment Intimately speaking, and you do have, we all have natural drives in that area, to be fulfilled within the context of a monogamous marriage relationship. One man and one woman for life. That's how God designed your body. It's not hard to see just by the way that God did anatomy. He designed the male and female to come together in this way. This is God's design, and it is beautiful. Despite the fact that the world has soiled it, and we can even bring some of those soiled views into the bedroom. It is God's design. And I fear that Satan has taken what God intended to be beautiful and he has soiled it. Now sex sells everything from cars to cheeseburgers. It's ridiculous where our culture has taken this. But I do believe that it is important for us to have a biblical view. Now even some of the ancients got this wrong. For example, John Chrysostom claims that virginity stands as far above marriage as the heavens stand above the earth. Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate, asserts, quote, all those who have, not, who have not remained virgins following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels and that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself are polluted, close quote. And even Augustine, the famous theologian, maintains that a marriage is not a good but it is a good in comparison with fornication or extramarital sex. He says continence is an angelic exercise, close quote. What these ancients are essentially saying is that marriage is not the best, celibacy is the best, and marriage is basically a compromise at best. Let me just say to you, that is false. That is a total misunderstanding of biblical revelation. And as much as I could respect Augustine and Jerome and Chrysostom, they have it wrong. God designed marriage. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that false teachers were teaching people to abstain from marriage and from foods that God created for us to enjoy. 
Paul actually says those who try to keep you from marriage are false teachers. Marriage is God's design and it is normative for most people. Most people will grow up, they will meet somebody, and they will get married. This chapter does deal with celibacy or singleness, but only addressing it as one who has the gift of singleness and celibacy. And Paul does affirm that it is easier, for example, if you're in the ministry or perhaps a missionary, it's a little easier if you're single because you don't have to worry about your spouse and you don't have to worry about children and so forth. You're more free to give maybe all of your time to the Lord's work. But that's the exception, not the rule. What will be normal for most people is that you will meet someone, you will marry them, and hopefully you will have a blessed marriage and family and all that goes with it. So Paul is dealing with the question. The second view uh, of verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, is that Paul is quoting their letter. Or that this saying, which you see in quotes in some of the versions, is a direct quotation in a line in the Corinthian letter. Just like in 6.12, when they were saying all things are lawful and Paul has to correct them or qualify it. Here, it seems to be that he is quoting something that they are saying. That it is good for a man not to touch a woman is their statement, and Paul is going to correct it. It's something that they were saying in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman is the essential meaning. The word touch is a euphemism in the scriptures for sexual intimacy. And so Paul is not saying that it is better if you don't marry or better that you're single. Paul would affirm what the Bible says elsewhere, that love and intimacy should be celebrated within marriage. But of course, in Corinth, there was so much confusion. Think about the culture for a second. The culture was filled with prostitution that seemed to be acceptable. A bunch of adultery was going on. There were perhaps, uh, some say, a thousand temple prostitutes who were serving false gods and goddesses and selling their wares to anybody who would be walking by. There was all kinds of sexual sin everywhere. So some of the Corinthians, when Paul came into town, they opened their heart to the gospel. Paul spent 18 months teaching them the word of God. But many of them were still confused, and they had brought all of their paganism, all their pagan past, now into their new relationship with Christ. Imagine if someone was a temple prostitute, or someone was cheating on their spouse all the time and thought it was acceptable, or someone was even involved in, in the temple and uh, false worship to gods and goddesses through sexual uh, sin. Imagine all the baggage, all the potential baggage that could come into the bedroom. Now you receive Jesus Christ, and now you get a biblical view of what your sexuality should look like. There's a lot to fix. There's potentially a lot of hurt. There's a potentially a lot of wounds, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of pain, and even a lot of forgiveness that would have to apply to marriages. And so this is what Paul is saying. Paul is correcting their view, and he will go on to do that in the chapter. It makes absolutely no sense that Paul is saying not to touch a woman or not to get married, and then he goes on for the next several verses talking about intimacy and marriage. He would be refuting his own argument. <laughs> That's why verse 1 has to be a line from their letter and their misunderstanding about God's plan for marriage. Paul, says one writer, is reacting to a particular situation at Corinth. 
not offering a compendium of his views of marriage and sexuality. You have to see that because Paul doesn't talk about a lot of different things as it relates to marriage because he is dealing with a specific situation. We could uh, talk about other scriptures, for example. Uh, Genesis 2.18 says, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife who can find her worth is far above jewels. So Paul is not contradicting biblical revelation. He is simply correcting something that's amiss in the Corinthian mindset and things that we need to know as well. People who forbid marriage would be wrong. They would be false teachers. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God highly honors marriage because he instituted marriage. It is his idea. If your marriage simply stands by the state seal of California, you're not going to make it. God wants your marriage to stand because of a covenant that you made with your bride or with your groom before him and a group of witnesses. He wants you to be true to that person for your whole life, to find a beauty of relationship that even will speak of the gospel. But there were some in Corinth that had decided that since sexual sin was part of their pagan past, maybe they shouldn't have sex anymore at all. In fact, there are indications here that some of the Corinthians, maybe male or female, decided that sex is bad. They got saved, and so they were going to become celibate even though they were married. They, They thought that their new life in Christ meant that they lived now on a spiritual higher plane. Gordon Fee believes that maybe these were some of the Corinthian women. Imagine this. Imagine a woman gets saved. She she becomes a Christian. She's married to a non-Christian man. Maybe she thinks that if she's going to be with him sexually, somehow she gets polluted or compromises herself before the Lord. There were some that believed that sex, intimacy, and marriage was part of the old life. And now that we're in Christ, we're like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage. So imagine you're a husband, you've come home from a long day at work, your wife comes home and she says to you, honey, I've made a decision I need to let you know about. What's the decision, babe? Well, the decision is I'm now going to be celibate. Can you imagine the husband? What? You've made this decision all on your own? What are you talking about? You're going to be set. Well, sex is bad and it's evil and you know what they do in the pagan temples and all of that. And I think we need to live on a higher plane. Can you imagine the spouse, whether male or female, going, help, Raggy. What do you do now? Can we FedEx this letter to the Apostle Paul? Is there any overnight service? Because now that spouse would be stuck. If you've committed yourself in vows to another person and that person will no longer be intimate with you, you've got no other options biblically. You're stuck. You've made a commitment to be pure and to be faithful to this person and have your sexual intimacy be only for them and they for you. And if they say no more, you're going to go, uh-oh. This is tough. And over the years, because of the fallenness and the weaknesses of ourselves and the things that we struggle sometimes let's face it sex is used as a weapon in some relationships 
Some, for some, the bedroom has become completely cold, and essentially, two people are just living as roommates. Now, there are factors that go into this. Busyness, stress. Uh, we could have, you know, as the years go by, we could have a poor self-image. And for some of you, it's captured in one word. Children! Because children can make it difficult. Moms get tired. They're giving so much to the kids. And all of a sudden, hubby comes home and he's one more person saying, hello, I'm over here. Remember me? So you have to make some adjustments. You have to be patient with one another. You may have to make a date. You may have to get a better lock on the bedroom door. You may have to send the kids to grandma's house for the weekend. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? <laughs> this is the reality of life. We don't just demand that, oh, you need to be with me. By the way, the Bible says, I, I'm glad I went to church today. You belong to me, woman. You belong to me, man. At my beck and call. No. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves said, you better have her heart before you have her body. If you have a fight in the kitchen and you think that the bedroom's going to fix it, it ain't. You see, your intimate life is a reflection of the rest of your life. Now, it doesn't mean that just because you've had a fight, you can't be intimate. But you know how it works. There are differences between men and women, let's be honest. When they do, they've done studies, women's number one need, they say, generally speaking, is for affection, uh, security. Men's number one need, according to these studies, is sexual intimacy. Do you know that sexual intimacy, according to these studies, is her number six? And affection and security is his number six. We are so different! And it's been said, I'm quoting others, don't write me an email, that men are like microwaves and women are more like crockpots. All right? I'm just quoting other people, no emails. A guy can just say, all right, honey, and it can be different. And this is where we need to meet each other in the middle. We're called to be loving and patient. Love does not demand its own way. And that goes from both directions. And so here's where we need the grace of God. Paul says, verse 2, But because of pornea, because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Nevertheless, King James, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. NIV, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now, verses 2 through 4 are qualifiers. Literally, you could render verse 2, let each man be having his own wife and each woman be having her own husband. Paul is not saying, for those of you who are not married, you should get married because there's so much sexual sin out there. So the first Christian that you meet, you say, hey, can we get married in a week? No, that, that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, yes, marriage is normative. It's the normal way that God would have it. But you should court for a while. You should get to know that person. You should figure out if they're a genuine Christian or they're just coming to church because they like you and they think you're pretty. Right? you got to investigate that, and that can take some time. Paul is not saying just get married because there's so much immorality out there and you're going to fall to sexual sin. What Paul is saying is he's talking about within the marriage. 
Because there's so much immorality, each man should be having his own wife regularly, and each woman should be having her own husband. His point is they should have each other, and this is what is common in biblical Greek for, Greek for have sexually. They should be together regularly. In Mark 6, 18, John the Baptist said, it's not lawful that you are having your brother's wife. This means sexual intimacy. And the way to avoid uh, falling to sexual sin is to be regularly with the one that you're married to. It kinda, it's one way to uh, 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 adultery-proof your relationship is if you're satisfying one another in intimacy and marriage, the devil's going to have less opportunity for one of you to be drawn away by another. This is just reality. The book, The Five Love Languages, were, was written with the concept of each person has a love tank, and that love tank needs to be filled by their spouse. Imagine, you know, like a, your car needs its tank filled with gasoline to go. But if your tank is empty and it gets emptier and emptier and emptier, you feel empty and then you could be more susceptible to going outside the marriage. You could be more susceptible to pornography. You, you could open yourself up to a whole host of sins. Now, should your intimacy be for protection purposes? No, it should be because you love each other and you want to be with each other. But this is a byproduct of it. It gives you less of a chance to fall to the clever wiles of the devil. And we know sexual sin is everywhere. And so Paul says, let the husband fulfill his duty. The verb is a present imperative to his wife. And likewise, notice that there's a mutuality here, a balance. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. Let the husband, uh, King James, render to his wife the affection due her or the due benevolence. That, that was the New King James. Due benevolence is the King James. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Some have commented that the idea here from the King James and New King James is that it is benevolent. It's not simply a duty, it's a kindness. When you are with your spouse in this way, you are being benevolent to them. You are taking care of a legitimate need that they do have. If you just have a sexual intimacy out of duty, that's going to come through. If you, if you say to your spouse, all right, if we have to, you know, then, then that's going to push them away from you as well. Now you say, well, Pastor Michael, what do I do if my drive is different than my spouse's drive? Then you try to meet each other in the middle and pray a lot, <laughs> right? Because you have to find, this is what marriage is. It is about compromise. It is about trying to find the best to bless the other. But if, if marriage is about the Christian life, that you're going to be other-centered instead of self-centered, I'm sure that as a couple you could figure this out. I'm sure you could figure out a good rhythm for the two of you that makes sense, where you're not demanding or making claims to duty, but you're doing it out of love. Because where love is, the devil has no place. Amen? If you do what you do motivated by love, the devil will have no opportunity. Marriage is not about demanding your rights. It's about loving somebody so well that, it, that mutual affection is just natural. You want to be together in that way. It doesn't mean that your affection always leads to that, but it means that you love each other that much that you desire that closeness. And so this is what Paul is saying. The Old Testament view about sex was very positive. It emph emphasized mutual satisfaction. 
the obligation is to have a satisfying sex life. Read Proverbs 5.19. I read it to you last week. Read the Song of Solomon, which is off limits until you're a certain age, even in Jewish circles, because it is very erotic. The idea here is that we are to have a healthy sex life within marriage. But I have to tell you that some of the ancients kind of got this wrong. In fact, they would argue that the only time that a husband and wife should have sexual intimacy was for procreation, to have children. Do you see Paul talk about that anywhere in this passage? Nope. Paul does not talk about procreation because sexual love is not just for having children. It's for your oneness. It's for your connection. Listen to Josephus, the Jewish uh, Roman historian. He says, quote, the law recognizes no sexual connections except the natural union of a man and wife, and that only for the procreation of children, close quote. This is Philo, Jewish philosopher, lived a little before the time of Christ. He sneers that when married partners are having intercourse for pleasure, instead of for procreation, they are acting like pigs and goats, close quote. That's ridiculous. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a husband and wife come together regularly for their intimacy, for their closeness, for the love and affection and joy that they enjoy with one another in the bedroom. And so it should be obvious that celibacy is not for marriage. And if a Corinthian person came home and said, I am now celibate, it leaves the other the other spouse or the partner in a very difficult spot. And that's why I kind of joke that maybe they're saying, send the letter to Paul, FedEx, overnight, please. I'm dying over here, somebody might say. Because it is a legitimate need to be satisfied, of course, in the context of marriage. And so that's why Paul says the wife can't just make this dogmatic claim the wife does not have authority over her own body. She can't just say, now you can't touch me anymore. But the husband does, and likewise also the husband, the husband can't say, I don't want to be with you sexually anymore, does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. I want you to notice in a very male-dominated culture at Paul's time, there's a mutuality here. It includes male and female. And that would indicate that maybe this was going both directions. Maybe some men had said, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm going to now be celibate and whatever. And Paul has to address the issue. When he talks about the body not belonging to the wife alone, but to the husband and vice versa, Paul's comments are probably from the Song of Solomon. Because remember, Paul was a Jewish scholar. Song of Solomon 2.16 says, My beloved is mine and I am his. Song of Solomon 7, verse 10 says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. The Song of Songs is about sexual gratification. And the type of intimacy that Christians should enjoy is Song of Solomon type of intimacy. Now, there are going to be different seasons. There are going to be factors. There's going to be need for patience. There are seasons of life. There's stress. There's pressures. There's self-image. There's physicality, there's all these factors where we need to be patient with one another. But you can see how even some of the ancient big names of years gone by got this wrong, and they put a wet blanket on the bedroom, and it was sad and unnecessary, and maybe it led people to having the wrong thought about intimacy and even 
could be uh, a reason for sin. And so finally in verse 5, because I know you probably can't take much more, Paul says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement or mutual consent, NIV, for a time, that you may devote yourselves, the idea of, of the word is uh, school, so it's a devotion singularly focused, to prayer, if you have a New King James fasting and prayer, and come together again, that is sexually, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Remember, he's addressing a specific situation in Corinth, and he says to them, since you wrote me the letter, here's my answer, sexual relationships and marriage is blessed by God, stop depriving one another, stop it. You need healing in this area. You need to be with each other, regularly speaking, and if you decide to uh, not come together, it should be, verse 5, by agreement, which indicates that a couple's having good communication about their sex life, and only for a time or a season or a short time that you can devote yourselves to something that God may call you. For example, uh, there may be, it could be a feast day. For a time can imply a short season. Let's say it's, it's Sunday, it's the day of the Lord, and you have a bunch of ministry stuff to do, stuff going on in the church. Maybe there's a fast going on. The Bible does enjoin abstinence during special holy days. Example, Joel 2.16, preparation for special missions, or even to meet God like Exodus 19.15, Leviticus 15.18, and even to get ready, I think in this case, it has to do with war, 1 Samuel 21.4-6, and 2 Samuel 11. 11 through 13. But keep in mind that sexual relationships uh, inside your marriage does not pollute you. It doesn't spiritually defile you. And even if you're married to a non-Christian right now and you're wondering about that, God would say, no, you continue as you are. You don't withhold intimacy just because your husband or wife is a non-Christian. You're married to them. So what you do is you pray for them that the Lord would use your witness to win them to Christ, but you don't withhold from them just because they're a non-Christian. That doesn't soil you. It doesn't pollute you. You're clean before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Your sexual intimacy should be a celebration of your love, not a place where it becomes a weapon or there's a bunch of hurts and wounds and so forth. And so obviously the remedies can be multi-layered, but ultimately I think it's about having God's heart for our spouse, loving each other, because the enemy's always looking for an opening. And Paul says, devote, uh, he says, come together again, end of five, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If a marriage is unhappy in this area, it becomes an open door for the devil. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says if the, if the couple is not mutually uh, intimate with one another and finding satisfaction there, the devil will look for a foothold through pornography, adultery, etc. It doesn't excuse anybody's sin, but the reality is, is that Paul's giving you an indicator where the enemy works and how he works. Here's an example. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil what? An opportunity. 
Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. That applies to anger. And here in your intimate life, you don't want to give the devil an opportunity. And so you want to surround your marriage with love and uh, closeness. And where love is, as I mentioned, the devil will have no opportunity. Now, as we wind down, let me say to you that because of the humanness and our fallenness and our past experiences, this can be an area where we're going to need love and patience with one another. We're going to need perhaps refreshment and renewal. We're going to have to ask God for his heart in these areas of our life. Because we, marriage is about two people trying to come together who are both have their quirks and their faults and their hurts and their wounds. And so what we need is the power of Christ, uh, even in that part of our life. Let me close with this. When I have couples come in for premarital counseling, one of the things I tell them is, our textbook for your premarital is going to be the Bible, so bring your Bible. And in the first session, I talk about Genesis, and I say, you know, when uh, God placed Adam in the garden, he, he told him to, uh, to um, have an environment where he would cultivate the garden and keep it. Cultivation is an environment for growth, and to keep it is to guard it. Genesis 2.15, to cultivate it and keep it. So Adam was placed there, and God allowed him with his headship that would have been given to him to name the animals. So animals were parading by, perhaps in twos, and, and Adam would name them. He would give a name to this animal, and that animal, and that animal. But it came out in the biblical narrative that there was not found a helper suitable for him. And God, after he called all these things that he had made good, 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 he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word helper in the Hebrew picture language could mean ally. It literally means one who can see the enemy. Isn't that interesting? But a few verses later, where's Eve? Right by the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit, talking with the enemy. And the enemy gets her to doubt God's word and God's goodness. And of course, she eats of the forbidden fruit and she, Genesis 3, 6, gives to her husband who was with her and he eats. What was Adam doing? He's supposed to cultivate an environment of growth. He's supposed to keep and protect and he didn't protect his wife from the snake. He should have stood between his wife and the serpent, but he was sitting there probably watching football. She hands him the forbidden fruit. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. What in the world's he doing? Well, you know, when God made the woman, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he did a divine surgery. He took one of his ribs. Uh, Adam was under the divine, you know, medication, whatever it was, he was sleeping. Perhaps the rib you could picture as glistening with his DNA, his very life. And God took that rib and he created a woman out of the rib that he had taken from Adam and he sealed up the flesh there. And God is the first father of the bride of all time because God takes Eve, he walks her down the aisle to Adam and gives her away. And when Adam sees her, he's been naming all these animals, no, that one doesn't fit me, that one doesn't fit me, that one doesn't fit me. He says, whoa, man! a little pause in the but he goes she's pretty 
That's an ad by Pastor Michael. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. She wasn't taken from the bottom of his feet to be less than him. She wasn't taken from the top of his head to be above him. She was taken from his wounded side next to his heart to fulfill that place in the human longing for love and to be a picture of Christ and the church. But of course we know what happens, right? The very next chapter there's a fall and the rest of the story of the Bible is talking about the last Adam who's coming. The first Adam messed it up along with his wife. The last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, is a life-giving spirit. Fast forward to another garden thousands of years later. In the first garden, Adam didn't stand between his, the serpent and his wife. She had come from his wounded side and they fall. In another garden, several thousand years later, the Garden of Gethsemane, the last Adam is there with his bride, his apostles. And the serpent comes again. This time, he has possessed Judas Iscariot. Judas has gone, and he's received money to betray the last Adam. He comes, there's a bunch of people with swords and clubs, and, and they've got torches, and they come into the garden. And, they, and Jesus says to them, who do you seek? And remember, they all fall down. And then he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forth, forth, faces the serpent, and he says, if it's me that you want, let these go their way, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that of those you gave me, I lost not one of them. Do you know that when Jesus goes to the cross the very next day, he gets wounded in his wrists and his feet, and one of the last things that the Romans do to him as he has breathed his last is a Roman takes a sword and pierces him right in the ribs, between his ribs, and actually causes his heart to burst. The Bible says out of that hole flowed blood and water. Do you know the, the beautiful picture is this? That the last Adam gives birth or life to his bride also out of his wounded side. And Jesus Christ has loved you to the uttermost. And Paul says, Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Listen. And gave himself up for her. That's how you love her. Let me ask you. If a husband is loving his wife in that way and a wife is respecting her husband in the way the Bible calls, is there going to be any imbalance? Is there going to be any room for selfishness or pettiness or demands or whatever you want to say? No, because the Spirit of God will be breathing life into that marriage. Here's our struggle, though. We have to pray every day, oh God, and I, this is my regular prayer. Here's my beautiful wife. Help me to love her as you love me. I pray that because I want to love you well. I'm going to try not to cry. <laughs> so I know that this is tough. This is a tough area. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of potential pain, maybe some forgiveness that's needed, healing. But I'm just saying to you, Christ's plan for your marriage is beautiful. It's good. It's right. It's so sad that Satan has soiled this and brought so much confusion, so much hurt, so much pain. And this is where we need grace. Grace for each other. To know that from 
The last Adam's wounded side, he showed us what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. If you ever have a doubt about what to do, take a fresh look at the cross, and the rest will take care of itself. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your holy word. This is a, a tough area to talk about, but it's here in our Bibles, and we need biblical clarity, but we also need strength to live it out, Lord. So let your love flow through us toward our spouse. And where there is hurt and pain from past issues, where there's confusion, where there's a need for forgiveness or uh, just a, a desire for renewal, I pray that that would take place. I pray that the governing verses of 1 Corinthians 16, 14 and 1 Corinthians 13, really the whole thing, would, would help us to see how to navigate this area of our lives. But I pray that we'd be able to celebrate our intimacy with our spouse. There's nothing like it. It's such a deep and beautiful relationship. And even as the years go by and the seasons change, you are so faithful. And I pray that you would be a husband to those who don't have a spouse right now, those who have been divorced, maybe even abandoned, those who have been uh, in a situation where their spouse has passed away and maybe they have questions about what to do. Uh, but I pray that you would just be the husband to anybody who has loneliness and struggles and hurts, uh, anybody who feels guilt or even false guilt that the enemy would want to throw at us. I pray that none of that would would be here, Lord, that we would know that we're forgiven, we're free. You're working a sanctifying work in us and we can rest in your finished work as you continue to mold and shape us into your image. I pray that in Jesus' name and with your head and heart bowed, if you've not met this Jesus, you've not met the last Adam, the Savior, the God who loves you and will always love you, would you open your heart to him? Would you rededicate your life? Would you just say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm hurting from what, what was done to me or what I've done to others. Please forgive me. Thank you that you nailed my sin to the cross. You've made me clean. In your sight, you took my punishment and my shame at the cross as though you had committed my sins. It's amazing love. I trust in you. I rededicate myself to you, my marriage to you, my singleness, whatever it may be. I just want to follow you, Lord. I want to be a person that shows forth the gospel and how I love others, especially my spouse. And so, Father, just may your healing waters, may your salve, may you, the beauty of who you are, the redemption, the gospel, the love of Christ, may it cheer our hearts, lighten the weights that we sometimes put on our shoulders, and may you make your people a free people indeed. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said.